I'm Michael Barber, and this is the Accomplishment Podcast. In my work, I've helped world leaders with some big challenges, changing healthcare systems, for example, or policing, or just generally making government more effective. But throughout my career, I keep coming back to education, or perhaps it keeps coming back to me. In 2008, as people will remember, Barack Obama was elected President of the United States and on 20th of January 2009, he was inaugurated. During that transition, I found myself part of a small group planning the education agenda for the incoming President and for his wonderful pick for Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan. A central figure in this transition was Joanne Weiss, a brilliant American education reformer who Arnie chose as director of his most ambitious programme of all, the Race to the Top programme. Race to the Top was announced early in the new president's term. It was the first time in history that the Department for Education in Washington had taken on such an ambitious national agenda for reform, or for that matter, had such a substantial sum of money to invest. I asked Joanne, what it felt like to be put in charge of it. Humbled, excited, worried, all of the above. (laughs) It was a huge opportunity. And also just the impact potential was so huge that I was both excited, just thrilled to be working on it and also worried. I had never worked Mm. in government before. Yes. And before we get into the detail, Tell the people who might be listening to this what Arnie Duncan was like. He is a very special human being and a very unusual person in the world of politics, anywhere in the world, never mind the US. He is. He is. So he was the Secretary of Education, uh, so the minister in the US for education. He had been the superintendent of schools for the city of Chicago for many years before he joined the Obama administration. And he was a terrific, very data-driven and reform-oriented superintendent who had not come up through the traditional route. He hadn't been a teacher and a school principal. He'd come from the outside into the district to help run the district and had a stellar, stellar track record. Arnie is just an amazing listener, an amazing learner. He asks great questions. He listens hard. He makes good decisions. He communicates them clearly. He's just a phenomenal, phenomenal leader. And he'd obviously known the president from before through Chicago, where they they had a connection. And also, I think they had a connection through basketball. Is that right? Yes, that is true. I think it started with their Chicago roots. Right. But yes, the president and Arnie had played basketball pickup games in Chicago since long before the election. Yeah, and I've got a vague recollection that Arnie had been a professional basketball player in Australia at some point. So there you are. You've got this fantastic and unusual and a person of extraordinary integrity and talent uh, as the US Secretary for Education. You've got a president who backs him, understands him, and will work around him to set the context. And then you have this massive piece of legislation that goes through that gives you really quite a lot of money, more money than the US Department of Education had ever had before for the race to the top. Are you able to put numbers on that at this distance? It was many hundreds. And I want to put it into even a slightly larger context. So this was when the Great Recession was well underway. 
And the Obama administration was doing a large package to respond to the Great Recession. So it was called the American Recovery Act. And one big part of that was a huge piece of legislation that was really designed to help schools save the jobs of teachers. Because since schools are obviously state funded and state tax revenue was precipitously down, there was a huge concern that teachers across the country were going to lose their jobs and there weren't going to be enough teachers to teach children. And so the federal government came in with a huge package of $96 billion to go directly to states specifically targeted for teacher jobs to save teacher jobs while tax revenues were covered in states. And then $4 billion was reserved for reform. So it was a $100 billion package. $96 billion went right to states for teacher salaries and $4 billion went to the Race to the Top program. Yes, and the four billion was a small proportion of the hundred billion, but it was but a bigger, huge, a, yeah, a huge amount of money for a competitive grant to states. Basically, uh, education in the U.S. has been run by the districts and the states, and the federal government has had a relatively modest role historically. But for that phase, it had the biggest, strongest role it's ever had since the department was created in the nineteen sixties. So there you are. You've got a, an ambitious president really good relationship between the president and the secretary of education. You've got a brilliant secretary of education who has a brilliant person, you, running the race to the top, and you've got four billion. And you are thinking about how do I, or how do we collectively, we, the administration, maximize the impact of that four billion on learner outcomes, on student progress? Well, there was legislation authorizing us to do this competition, and the legislation authorized $4 billion for the Race to the Top program and set out four big priorities that it needed to address standards and assessments. It needed to address teachers and teacher effectiveness. It needed to address school turnaround, and it needed to address data and data systems. And then it said, and anything else the secretary would like. So it was actually maybe half a page of legislation. I mean, what I said to you is almost the full extent of the legislation that surrounded this. So there was a lot of leeway we had to think through how to design a competition that would accomplish these goals that Congress had set out. And for that first Obama term, we'll come to the second term later, you had a loss of support in Congress, both houses of Congress, for the approach you were taking, didn't you? And... There was a coalition of governors who had come together over the prior two years and basically, I want to say commissioned, but really requested the development of brand new academic standards for mathematics and English. And there were new standards that were called the Common Core State Standards that had been developed by national coalition of experts. And the vast majority of state governors were very excited about this and signing on to it. And they came to us, remember standards and assessments was one of the required pieces in the legislation that we had gotten. The governors came to us and said, this is gonna be very expensive for us to implement. New standards are very expensive to implement. You need new curriculum, you need to retrain your teachers and you need new assessments to match these standards. Please use some of this money to support that work. And there was a bipartisan group of governors as well as Congress behind this. I was invited, as it happened, to the same event as Arnie was invited to speak to the governors through the National Governors Association Mm -hmm. and sitting next to Arnie. And my recollection of that, which seems so 
amazing from 2023 perspective is I couldn't tell which were the Republican governors and which were the Democrat governors. It's it's almost unthinkable today, but that's exactly what it was like back then. And people forget, you know, people look back and do a lot of revisionist thinking about this work, but it was a bipartisan moment. And it wasn't that rare back then. I mean, it, no. there, there were many of them leading up to 20. Yes, there was that. It's brief in hindsight, but at the time it looked like a huge opportunity of bipartisan drive for this. So so your context was strong and you were bold and ambitious because you wanted to seize this unique moment. When you invited the 50 states to enter the competition, you also said there were some conditions of entry, like on charter schools. Could you just describe how that worked? Because you had to do the four things, but you had this discretion to add features. Yes, Correct. There were a few aspects of the competition that we designed that were specifically designed to really try to drive as much reform as possible across the country, not only with the people who would win the money, but even in order to compete in the first place. So there were a number of states that had laws that prohibited uh, any teachers from having connected to them data about their students' outcomes. So it was illegal to know for a principal or a school uh, system leader, how the teacher's students in that class were doing and and compare that back to the uh, teacher. So we said, those laws have to go away. That that doesn't make any sense. You've gotta be able to connect teachers and their students and understand how student outcomes look by teacher as well as by school. And so anybody who even wanted to compete at all had to get rid of those laws. All of those laws fell in the U.S. Yeah, like that. So there's a cap on charter schools in some sections, I think, also. Well, so then there was another set of rules that weren't eligible. So that was eligibility. You can't even compete if you don't do that. Because that, remember, this is a competition. So this money wasn't mandatory money. We weren't saying people had to do this. We were trying to get as many people in the country as possible interested in competing. So then we took all of the points that the competition that you accrued from competing and basically broke them in half. And about half the points we called, I think, something like conditions for reform. And all of those were things that you had to have in place, that you got points for how you didn't have to have them in place, but you got points for all of the things you had in place. And then we had plan conditions and those were getting points for the things you intended to do with the money in the future. And so that set up a situation in which in order to get as many points as possible for conditions, people started passing laws and changing their conditions, which we hadn't actually expected. And that's where some of the charter caps fell in the country. And just a number of conditions in the country started changing around education in response to that. The reason I'm going into the detail on this is because I think it's a very important aspect of accomplishing reform. Very often people run competitions and some win and some lose. The losers are obviously disappointed. The winners win. But in this case, you've got education reform before you'd spent a single dollar of the race to the top money because of the conditions of entry. Correct. And there's one other thing we did. We ran the competition in two phases and we said that. We said there's going to be a phase one and you have to cross a threshold and it's going to be a high bar in order to win. And then in phase two, you can revise your application and resubmit if you want. And that turned out to also drive a lot of reform and change because people who didn't win in the first phase, and we can talk more in a minute about this, but people who didn't win in the first phase then went back and re-looked at their laws and re-looked at their plans and 
made them even bolder and came back with different plans. The detail of how you ran the competition is important. So people had to put in proposals to the department. In addition to the the various policy things that were conditions, you had conditions about building a coalition in the state to take this agenda forward if they won. The U.S. is a very fragmented education system. So the state controls the vast majority of the education laws and policies, not the federal government. Each state does it. And within states, the governor has some control. There's a state education agency whose leader has some control. And there's a state board of education. And in every state, the relationship among these three entities is different. We required all three to sign on to the application and... Uh, attest to their support for it. In addition, we asked, as you said, teachers unions, the business community, the advocacy community to sign on. And we also said, you need to have a memorandum of understanding signed with your district leaders to show that your districts are on board to do this because districts don't report to the ministry of a state. They are all independent and they could all go their own way and nothing would happen. So they got points for the strength of their support, the number of districts that signed on. So you didn't have to have everybody sign on, but you got more points for the more people you signed on. And that just created alignment in the system as well as a base for support across the state. And in terms of uh, my writing about delivery and so on in how to run a government, I talk about a guiding coalition, the key people who are going to drive it. So you you required them to build a guiding coalition and then ever widening circles of support. So you also got often hundreds of districts in the state to sign up. Because remember, the districts are the ones that have to do the implementation. Most of the implementation is happening in the districts. And so having them sign on was very important to say that there's actually going to be people implementing this reforms that the state has proposed. It sounds obvious in hindsight, but actually this was an innovation in the way competitions have been run by the federal government. Then in most governments I've ever seen when they run a competition, these things get submitted and some group of officials sit in the the ministry and score these things, but they may be subject to some pressures from politics and so on. But you didn't do that, did you? You had panels of experts. How did that work? Well, it is required in the U.S. for these kinds of competitions that you have uh, what's called peer review, which is done by outside experts. But very often the experts don't really understand the subject that they're looking at and aren't particularly well trained. We actually recruited actively went out and recruited experts from around the country, brought them in, did several days of training with them. When we had our first round of applications, we had no examples to show. So we talked about things theoretically so that they could calibrate and norm with one another. When we retrained people for the second round, we had all the applications from the first round that we could use as samples to calibrate. So we did a very, very serious round of training for these reviewers. And we had the reviewers come in. We did all kinds of, you know, like jigsaw puzzle versions of reviewers so that we didn't get any sort of systemic bias by mistake by having one group of reviewers, the same group of reviewers review multiple applications. They always were changing. They scored the applications. They wrote comments. And all of this became public. So one thing that I think is such an underutilized lever in government in general, or at least it is in the US, is transparency. So in government, 
one of the big things I was told is we're not publishing anything on the website. So we're not publishing our rule. You know, we'll, we'll publish the application, of course, for the competition, but that's it. That's the only thing we're publishing. And we have a law in the U.S. called the Freedom of Information Act, FOIA, which says that anybody who's interested can send a request into government and say, I, as a taxpayer, have the um, right to see this information. And it's true that you have the right to see that information for a, a huge number of documents, not everything, not deliberative documents and things where you're working out policies and thinking and going back and forth. But once something is finalized, it is true that you have the right to see it. So I made a rule for this competition over the objections of my whole staff, to be honest, that said if something was foyable, it was going to be put up proactively on our website. So that meant all of the training we did for our peer reviewers, all of the applications we received from states, all of the reviewers' comments and points for every application, everything went up on our website as fast as we could, you know, review it, redact private information and get it up there. And it completely changed the landscape for this competition in ways we hadn't even imagined. Absolutely fantastic. And forgive me if I've remembered this wrongly. You then had these panels also interviewed state teams and that you recorded those interviews and put them on YouTube. So this increased the quality of everything we got because people knew that it was all going to be public. So immediately, I think it lifted the quality of what was going on. It created a common vocabulary and a shared understanding for education reform that turned out to be so important and useful because we just didn't have that in the U.S. before this moment. It then created a marketplace for sharing ideas because everybody's applications were up there and one state could look at another state's and go, oh my God, that's a great idea. Hence the, and in phase two, we can add that to our application because that's a good idea. Let's do that. So it created this real marketplace for ideas. And the last thing it did, which I think was predictable, but was just so valuable, was we crowdsourced, we were sort of able to crowdsource data reviews, analyses of applications. There were so many thousands of pages in the end that we received from all of this that we literally would never have had the resources to really look for trends, for all kinds of things. And the media and the academic community were all over this data, publishing findings, asking questions, holding people accountable, finding trends we had never seen in the data. And it created a real moment of learning for the country that was tremendous to see. At the end of that first round, two states won, Tennessee and Delaware. If you didn't know much about this competition, you'd have said, wow, one really small state on the East Coast, one uh, state in the, the South. How did they win? The interesting thing that happened is we got all of the scores from the reviewers and we did this blind. We didn't know what state was what because no political appointees were on any of these peer The peer review panels were entirely outside experts. So we got the rank ordered list of scores with no state names. And the question we had was, where will we draw the line for the first phase of this like how many states are going to win and where do we draw the line? And we looked at it and there were two states, which turned out, as you said, to be Delaware and Tennessee, that were just vastly higher than all the others. There was just a natural break in the scores that was pretty obvious and dramatic after those two. 
And so we said, well, we said we were going to keep the bar high. We're going to keep the bar high. We're only going to have two winners. And here they are. Tell us, please, uncover the state names. Who are these two states? And they were Tennessee and Delaware. And we went with them. Quite rapidly, you ran a second round, didn't you? I think it was about a dozen states won the second time round. Is that right? I think we gave them about six months to... revise their proposals. Many of them passed even more laws in order to get more points on the conditions and um, revise their proposals and come back and compete again. This was fast. All of the money was given away by the end of year two. I mean, in the end, 46 states out of 50 competed plus DC. And a lot of them were, I mean, they had built guiding coalitions. They were very committed to the plans. There were some things that required funding that they couldn't do, but there were a lot of things on their plans that didn't require funding, were just different ways of doing business or policy changes. Or And they had at that point such a group of converts in their state that were f- interested in doing this work that the work continued. So at the end of the first term, when you went into that 2012 election, that all looked really promising. But in 2012, 20- 10 and 2012, the nature of the Congress changed a lot, didn't it? I remember that sense of excitement about what you'd accomplished. And then suddenly seeing these barriers or the resistance beginning to emerge, partly from changes in Congress, partly also to some extent from some of the teacher union leaders. Can you describe how that felt? So as I said, all of the competition decisions were done by, I'm going to say, the end of 2010. That year is when we had a midterm election in Congress, so halfway through the president's first term. And that's when the Tea Party came into power, which is sort of the early, the proto, (laughs) the proto Trump years, the early stages of the far right wing starting to come into power in the U.S. And we had the left wing go farther left. Uh, We had just a much, much more divided country and a much more divided Congress than we had had for the first two years of the administration. But you you pursued the agenda and you were still making good progress. But the the common core standards that you started this conversation talking about became very controversial, didn't it? Partly teachers who didn't want to be held to account for their outcomes and states that didn't want the federal government to tell them what to do. These, these are the two main arguments, I think. So one of the conditions for reform was whether states had adopted these standards. And um, 40 some odd states adopted the standards in those first two years. And remember, the governors had been the ones coming to us saying, yeah. please give us money to do this. And we said, well, if you haven't adopted the standards, you can't win money to implement them. So it's got to be a condition for this, that that you've got those standards in place. We had some states, like New York did win, and New York took a lot of their money and worked with with some new publishers, nonprofit publishers, to create new curriculum that matched the standards. All those curricula were free and open on the web. That was a requirement of the competition, that anything you created using this money had to be available to everybody across the country. And that created the beginning of a brand new curriculum movement in the U.S. to have higher quality materials that were aligned to these new standards. So we had a lot of things happening that were very promising around the country. And I would say that the legacy of that is still really helpful and important in the U.S. today. But we definitely had a big political backlash 
against the standards, really against the federal government telling states what to do. And it began sort of movement around the country to walk away from the standards. I would argue that most of the state education leaders wanted to stay with those standards. And in virtually every state, they figured out a way to do that. So the standards got renamed. They got renamed, you know, Florida Sunshine State Standards instead of the... So states renamed them. They maybe tweaked them a little bit. But still to this day, 40 some odd states in the U.S. have comparable enough standards that if you're a curriculum publisher, you have a big market you can sell to instead of 50 little markets that you have to cater to the way we used to have in this country. And it it allows you to create much higher quality materials. And then President Obama was re-elected in spite of the two-party reaction, so re-elected with a decent victory. But the second term was a lot harder work, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, the country was uh, was fragmenting the backlash, not only in education. I mean, the backlash, you know, the Tea Party had nothing to do with education. Right. Education just happens to be a place where politics, I think this is true in most countries in the West, yeah. it, it's a place where politics land. I mean, education, yeah. whether we like it or not, is political and it can be, you know, a, a good feeding ground for political arguments. Yes, the work was much harder. You haven't talked much about the teacher unions, but they were quite resistant where you were trying to connect the standards to individual teacher performance and how it was measured. Yeah, not the standards. We were trying to connect teacher effectiveness, like is this teacher good, to how their students were doing. Yeah. So it, it this is another one of those things that you have to kind of put yourself in the way back machine. And back in the 2000s and before, if you talked to anybody and said, tell me what a good teacher is. In the US, the answer that you would get is a good teacher, somebody who loves children, who cares about children. And all of that is completely true. But the reform movement was like, and the children under their tutelage learn. And how do you know if they've learned? And how do we measure student growth? And then connect that back to teachers so we can see whether teachers are actually helping their kids learn. That's critically important also. That was the part. It really had nothing to do with the common core standards per se. It was really about teacher effectiveness. And that that had huge backlash. I, I would argue that it's still an important measure, but we in the administration tried to do this way too fast. I mean, just change management was badly done districts and states didn't know how to implement this. We tried to force it on people too fast. So I I think that implementation mistakes were made on this all over the place. But I do think that today, if you asked somebody in the U.S. what's a good teacher, they would say somebody whose kids learn and who cares about children. So that's a victory that I'm willing to take. Yes, quite right. (laughs) And so towards the end of the second term, Harney stepped aside and I think you stepped aside at the same time. Is that right? Well, oh. I stepped aside before. I before. left before Arnie did. Right. And really, it was because I believe very deeply that the new standards, and we had also, as part of Race to the Top, funded states to develop new assessments that really helped change the 
yeah. assessment landscape in the U.S. were the biggest policy changes at scale that had been made in my lifetime, but only they're only words on a page if they don't make it into classrooms. And there was nothing that I could do to support implementation from my seat at the federal government. So right. I left and started working with states and others to help them with real implementation questions. Right. Yeah, I, I always say to government ministers around the world on education reform, that however much you change in legislation or white papers, unless you change what teachers do all day, everything's going to stay the same. Right. And you, you, that's what you went to do. Yeah. And that's why like, this was such an important reform, because it really was about the heart of teaching and learning. It was what do kids need to know and be able to do, and how do we help them do that? So it, it, it is a policy that really can get right at the heart of improving outcomes for kids if, if, yeah. if it's actually implemented well. And when you look back on that time from your, you know, from the current vantage point, just on a personal level, is it the most exciting thing you've ever been involved in? Yes. Yes, it, I mean, certainly it was from a scale perspective, from an impact perspective, from just for me personally, from a learning and growth perspective, um, it was phenomenal the work and impact is still, I mean, we're still so far from done and it's still so far, especially with all the setbacks we've had during the last three years of the pandemic, the work is so far from done that it doesn't feel at all like a victory lap, but it was certainly fascinating, engaging, yeah. and I think good work. Yes, and it sounds from some of the things you've said, there's a lot of really positive continuing legacy and continuing reform. In that sense, Race to the Top was a turning point in the US education reform movement. You're, you're probably too modest to say that. but Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of debate about that question. But I do think a lot of the people on the ground who were involved in the work in their states of doing the applications and figuring things out, they're still sitting in state agencies and in districts around the country because I talk to them and meet them all the yeah. time. And you can see that they learned a lot from it and they've taken that learning with them and they're continuing to do a lot of the good work. So when you look back, should you have been bolder? Should you have been more cautious? What's your reflection looking back? What's the lesson? I think we were very bold. Change management and change in education is very, very hard. And these institutions are brittle. They're calcified. They just, I mean, they, they don't implement things well in the U.S. Our whole system is so fragmented that if you wanted to have professional learning for teachers to train them on something new, like how to effectively teach young children to read, you know, the science of reading for young children, there's no way to get that through the system. There's no channels for doing that. It's totally piecemeal. And that makes it hard to do reforms that get implemented well. I mean, I'm sort of back to the deliverology problem. It's sort of times 15,000 school yeah. districts in the U.S. And it makes it very hard from a policy point of view to find the sweet spot between bold and time to implement. And I just am not sure we found that sweet spot properly. Yes. I mean, you obviously made progress, but but the, the, the sweet spot would be difficult to find. And sometimes there's a sequencing thing in education for the, 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 the order that you do things. Some, sometimes when I look back on things I did, I thought if we'd done that after that rather than before it, maybe it would have worked. Right. And politics 
is hard because politics pushes against that. Politics has, I'm my, I have an election in four years. Now my election's in three years. Now it's in two years. We got to get this done because I might be gone in two years or I will be gone in two years. And so things like you would like to have standards and then you would like to have the curriculum and text materials and instruction materials that support those and then professional learning for the teachers in how to use those materials to help students achieve those standards and then start tying outcomes to our students actually teaching well. And that's a multi-year process that looks nothing like the political cycles. And we absolutely conflated all of that into one short period of time when yeah. there really is an order that would have been helpful. Joanne, it's been fantastic talking to you. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed uh, interacting with you when you were doing all that wonderful work on Race the Top. I think it was a very inspiring phase. And the Leaving aside the lessons on education, the lessons on competition design in Race to the Top, I think are world leading uh, and very rarely replicated because you need the kind of courage and determination and, and, and attention to detail that you gave it. So thank you very much for your time and reflections. Well, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure, Michael. I've really enjoyed the conversation. And thank you also for all of the support and advice and counsel you gave us. It just made a huge difference. We really appreciated it. Thank you for listening to the Accomplishment Podcast and my thanks to guest, Joanne Weiss. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter at MichaelBarber9. There's a book that accompanies this podcast, Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things, published by Penguin. Also, don't forget to review the Accomplishment Podcast and subscribe so you don't miss the great game changers telling their stories on how to get things done. This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell, thanks to her and to the rest of the team.